Ameda Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Data analysis of the human genome is more accessible thanks to advancements in technology. In this episode, I talked to two senior product scientists and managers at 23andMe, Jamaica Perry and Alisa Lehman. Jamaica and Alisa talked about the human genome and areas of research in this. We also talked about data that can be generated from analyzing it and the ways in which this can be presented to a consumer. Jamaica Perry and Alisa Lehman, both senior product scientists and managers at 23andMe are joining us today. Jamaica and Alisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to have you on the show. I haven't interviewed anyone from 23andMe before, and I think what they're doing is, is really interesting. 23andMe is a genomics and biotechnology company with a mission to help people access, understand, and benefit from the human genome. Can you begin by talking a bit about what 23andMe is doing and what the human genome is? So 23andMe does a lot. So Lisa and I specifically work on the health report side of 23andMe. So okay. we provide reports in a couple different health categories. So carrier status, genetic health risks, wellness and traits. Um, we provide these reports to our customers. But of course, there's also our ancestry product. There's research that happens at 23andMe. There's our therapeutics business. Within the product, there's all number of different ways of connecting with people. So there's a lot to what 23andMe is. And the basis of 23andMe is the human genome, which is the three billion or so DNA letters that we all have within us, the A's, C's, T's, and G's that make us who we are. Those are packaged into 23 chromosomes, which is where we get the name 23andMe from. And what we do is we essentially look at those A's, T's, and G's and try and provide customers with information about their own personal genetics. So you're mentioning this, it's represented by letters. And what sort of data can you get from this from our chromosomes? Sure. So there's uh, two main types of data that 23andMe has. One is just those letters that you have throughout your genome. So those ACs, Ts, and Gs. How that works is you order a kit online, we send it to you in the mail, and there's a tube where you fill it up with saliva. So it's a spit kit. We send that back, you send that back to our lab where they'll analyze the DNA that you've provided in that kit. So that's how we get your genetics, the genetic data from you. In addition, there's the option for people to opt in to our research program, and about 80% of our customers do that. And once people have opted in, they can take online surveys and they can answer questions ranging from, you know, have you ever been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease um, down through, do you ever sneeze uh, after looking at bright sunlight? So we have all this non-genetic data about people as well. And then by combining and looking at, you know, where in the genome are there associations for a particular letter um, with any of that non-genetic data is how we can create these reports that are on all kinds of different topics. Mm-hmm. And for people that, you know, didn't really take a genetics class or don't know much about DNA, it's essentially what has all the data from each of us, right? Like our eye color and things like that, right? Yes, it basically encodes everything that makes you, you. And let's talk a bit more about the data 
from what you mentioned and also what I read before this this interview, I saw that customers can decide to opt in to participate in the research at 23andMe. Can you give some examples of the research that's happening? I know that you said both of you are focused on the reports, but just to get an idea of what kind of research can come out of this data. Sure. A lot of what my team focuses on is our traits and wellness reports, which we actually do use a lot of the research data often for those reports. So in addition to taking surveys about your eye color, your traits that you have um, to allow us to create new genetic or identify new genetic associations and create reports about that. We have a broader research program that has collaborations with both industry and academics looking at all kinds of different things. So we have a a Parkinson's disease cohort that we've been doing a lot of uh, Parkinson's disease research in that space, as well as, you know, spreading across all kinds of disease areas like bipolar depression and lupus is another one of the big disease areas that that we cover. So the goal is to, you know, do publications and to contribute to the scientific literature. Um, And we have over 120 publications to date. I think we just published a paper on insomnia just in the last month. So we really run the gamut in the topics that we cover with our research program. Let's dive into the area you're mostly focused on, which is these reports that come from both data from the human genome in addition to what users answer through surveys. And as you mentioned, there are various reports, the genetic health, risk, ancestry, wellness, career status, traits are some of the ones that I looked up. What does a health report consist of? So our health product does encompass both our carrier status and genetic health risk reports, which are our FDA regulated reports, as well as our wellness and traits reports, which are not regulated by the FDA. So there's really a a broad spectrum of reports that fall within our health product. What does it mean FDA regulated versus not regulated? Yes, so the FDA of course is the Food and Drug Administration. They're a federal agency and their job really is protecting public health. They ensure safety, efficacy, and security of drugs, biological products, and medical devices. So we are regulated, our health product, or the reports that fall within our health products that are regulated, they are regulated as medical devices. So this means that those reports have been reviewed and authorized by the FDA. So we've worked with the FDA in developing the content in the reports, in doing our analytical validation of the report, and also in doing some of the user testing surrounding concepts that we present in the reports. I see. Can you describe a little bit the kind of information that you would see in a report? I know both of you are focused in different kind of reports. I think, Alisa, you're focused on the wellness area in, in Jamaica on clinical health and genetic conditions. Can you just talk about the data? Because I think this is the core of 23andMe. It helps you make sense of this data and provide it to you so that you can take action on your health potentially. Yeah, so we can start with the regulated reports. Regulated reports tend to be very templatized just because they are regulated by the FDA. So we follow a similar template for all of the reports. And really the key element of reports is giving people their genetic results. So whether a variant was detected or not, and then an interpretation of that result. So whether they are not likely at risk, whether they have a slightly increased risk or an increased risk for a condition based on their genetic results. We always highlight for people what the intended use limitations and relevant ethnicities of our tests are. So we will sort of understand the scope of all of our tests. And then 
kind of an important aspect is also talking about the next steps that somebody can take once they have viewed their genetic report. So none of our reports are diagnostic, which means if a risk variant is detected, we really want people to then go discuss that result with a doctor, genetic counselor, some, somebody in the healthcare field to determine what type of follow-up testing or what follow-up might be necessary. And then, of course, we also give people the opportunity just to learn more about the condition and if they are interested in that space to connect with different advocacy groups in that area as well. And on the traits and wellness side, um, it's it's similar, but maybe slightly broader because the topics that we are uh, talking about are things like on the traits side, like your eye color, if you have a cleft chin, you know, your earwax type. So we're not going to suggest that you go to a healthcare professional as a result of any of the, the, that information. But we do have wellness reports like lactose intolerance where someone might find out in a similar way that they have a variant or two variants that make them more likely to be lactose intolerant. We provide that interpretation as well as, again, more information about what does it mean to be lactose intolerant and then follow-up actions that they, that they can do, like maybe thinking about does this match their actual experience? You know, when they consume dairy, do they, you know, experience symptoms of lactose intolerance? And if they do, would they want to, you know, follow up with a medical professional or consider cutting down on the amount of dairy that they consume? I think one sort of key difference between the regulated health reports and the traits and wellness reports is that a lot of times in the traits and wellness world, we are looking at sort of a lot of different genetic variants in concert rather than just if you have a variant or you don't have a variant and does that mean you're at increased risk or decreased risk, but looking at you know, may, maybe a hundred variants or more and saying all together, your result at all those hundred different places, what does that put you on the spectrum from, you know, having blue eyes to brown eyes or having, you know, a genetic predisposition to weigh more or less than average. So it gives you a little bit more of a spectrum of traits that you might have. What do you mean by spectrum? So one key thing about our, our traits and wellness reports is that often we provide a sort of a probability. So rather than saying, you know, you're at increased risk for having a cleft chin, we may say, you know, 32% of people like you, 32% of people with genetics like you actually have a cleft chin. So you could have a cleft chin, you could not. If you do, you're one of those, that 33%. If you don't, then you're in the other 7%. It provides more, of, like I said, a probability of your likelihood of having a certain trait or not. And the way this is reported, like you mentioned, is in terms of people like you, or is there also a way to report like you are 10% likely to develop Alzheimer? Or is it always reported people like you have this, like 30% of people like you develop Alzheimer? Is that different? Yeah, for the health reports, we always, at least for the genetic health risk reports, um, where we are focusing on personal risk, we always do report on a customer's personal risk. So we don't say people with genetics similar to you, we say, you know, you, based on your genetics, have an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, which is different from the traits reports. Mm -hmm. Where we would provide a percentage of people like you who actually have the trait, right? What is the motivation for having two different ways of reporting? Some of this is based on the genetic data that underlies the reports. So for the traits reports, that is based on our own internal data. And what we know about people is not 
you know, people don't report to us if they have an increased risk of having a trait. They report whether they have the trait or not. So when we find the genetic association between that trait and a certain place in the human genome, the accurate way of reporting that association is to say you have this percent. Based on people like you, there is this percent of people have that particular trait. And then on the health side, yeah, on the health side, I mean, it's we know these are known genetic variants with association with disease. So we are able to link it specifically from that genetic variant to a particular condition. And one of the other things that came up when looking at these reports is this polygenic score. Can you describe what this is, the polygenic score? Sure. So the polygenic score is, is what underlies the majority of our, our trait reports. Basically, people may be familiar with this idea that, you know, a single genetic variant may really increase your risk for a certain disease. That's what we base our, you know, our health reports on. And a lot of cases, that's the, the main driving genetic factor. But for a lot of things like your traits or um, certain common conditions, actually a lot of different genetic variants all may play a really small role, but all play a role in your chances of having that trait. And so what a polygenic score does is it takes into account the overall aggregate effect of all those different places in your genome. They may individually have a small impact, but when you add them all up together, they can give you a more comprehensive look or a bigger look at your chances or your likelihood of having that trait. So you can think of, you know, genic is just, that's the DNA, that's your genes, and poly is just many. So we're just looking at many, many places, many different genes, and adding up the effect of all of those together to get that polygenic score. And that score is then what tells you whether you're more or less likely to have that trait. And in terms of the wellness report, which I know you, Alisa, work on, can you talk about some examples of actions then that somebody can take based on what they saw in this report? Sure. Our wellness reports are definitely around, you know, making connections between your DNA and things that relate to healthy living. So a lot of the, the actions that are in these reports is things for people to consider are, you know, associated with healthy living. So an example would be in our saturated fat and weight report. And we talk about how um, a certain variant that you may have may make you more likely to weigh more on a diet high in saturated fat. Now, a natural thing, next step for what to do with that information is to consider lowering the amount of saturated fat that you eat. This is a healthy action that I think is generally strongly recommended for everyone, but in particular, that's a little extra motive. Your genetics provide that little extra motivation. Exactly. And what about in genetic reports, Jamaica? Is there some sort of action somebody can take based on what they see in the genetic health report? Yeah, so really, as I mentioned previously, like really the goal of the genetic health risk reports is, at least for people with you know, a genetic result that would warrant this, it is to actually get them to go and talk to a doctor or a genetic counselor, somebody in the healthcare space to help them better understand the result and understand what follow-up either actions or testing might be needed. I see. Let's talk about what goes into building these reports. I know one of you mentioned for some of them you've collaborated with the Food and Drug Administration. But in terms of 23andMe, what needs to happen in order to come up with a report and the data that will be shown in the report? So sort of like the design process of this. 
Yeah. So I guess the design process is very different <laughs> depending on what type of report we're looking at. But I think, you know, initially we're always looking at feasibility and interest. So, you know, say somebody comes or some of us come up with a report topic or somebody from another area of the company comes to us or, you know, we get a customer inquiry about an interesting report topic. We will look into that topic. And in the health space, what we really need to look into is whether that particular condition is compatible with our genotyping technology. So we are a SNP-based array. We do not do sequencing. So there are some conditions that are better served by sequencing, but there are other conditions where there are like known, well, yeah, well-known genetic variants that if we have them on our chip, we can report on those. So that's our initial step is always doing feasibility of whether the condition seems like it's something that would be impactful for customers, whether it's something that would be actionable, whether it's something that would be interesting, and then also whether it is feasible from the standpoint of our chip as well. And then on the traits and wellness side, um, there is a feasibility step um, as well, but what that looks like is actually quite different. So uh, as I said, a lot of these reports are based on our own internal data and they are these sort of polygenic scores. And so we have an entire R&D team that works to create those scores to identify these new genetic associations in our own data and then to evaluate uh, those associations and those scores to see if they are sort of predictive of, of the trait or, or you know, wellness condition that we may be looking at. So similarly looking at whether there is good scientific evidence, but it's sort of doing the experiments ourselves versus necessarily like looking into the literature. And then because we are developing these scores in-house, we don't have to worry as much about SNP or a variant not being on our chip because we're developing it. So by, by definition, it's on our chip. Is the process bi-directional in the, in the sense that the R&D team can have already some data about it and then it's more of like, do we show it in the report or you get feedback from customers and you decide of, of a metric that might be valuable and then you tell the research and development people, hey, you might consider researching in this. For traits and wellness, it, it definitely is. You know, we may hear that people are really interested, we may hear from customers that they're really interested in a topic that we don't have data on and then we can go through the process of adding those questions to our, our research surveys then get the data and be able to create the score. Sometimes it works the other way where our R&D collaborators will say, hey, we're looking at, you know, for some other topic or some other project and we notice this new genetic association, is this something that would be interesting to customers and we evaluate it from that end as well. Both of you are product scientists here at 23andMe. Can you talk about what this role consists of? So the role is very, there's a lot of aspects to the product science role. I would say really the core job of being a product scientist is to research and then write our genetic health reports, which of course is done in association with many other teams within the company. And then product scientists also were always thinking about how our current genetic reports and any new genetic reports we're interested in can be incorporated into the whole ecosystem of the 23andMe product. I think one of the key parts of being a product scientist, in addition to, as Jamaica said, creating these the genetic reports, that, that really is, is the core of what we do, but also to act within the company as uh, scientific sort of liaisons. So since we do create the content that customers see, we hope a reasonably good um, ear for what is what is customer friendly. So 
you know, if uh, the marketing team is working on something or another team is working on something that's going to be customer facing, you know, our job is to make sure that the science is, is still represented accurately and understandably and help other teams within the company as well to make sure that we're always representing the science in the right way. And earlier you were talking about feasibility being a core component of this for building the reports. Are there some metrics that can be used to, to measure the feasibility of something in this case? For our polygenic scores, there are uh, sort of quality metrics that we use. We actually have a publicly available uh, white paper that talks about the development of those scores and some of the metrics that we evaluate before creating or putting those reports out there. It's a little different, I think, for the reports that are based on peer-reviewed publications. Yeah, we're, I mean, we do still have metrics for our reports. So again, we have also have a publicly available white paper about our analytical and clinical validity standards, but you know, we hold ourselves to particularly high standards in terms of both analytical validity, so our ability to report a particular genotype, and clinical validity, so the amount of evidence that's out there in the literature supporting an association between a variant and a, a certain condition. And for both teams, sort of regardless of whether it's it's a a genetic health risk report or a trait report. We do have an uh, extensive internal review process that also really helps making sure that what goes out is scientifically um, accurate. So we, both, we do scientific review. We have our medical affairs team, our regulatory affairs team, quality assurance teams that all weigh in. And then also as we're developing reports, we do you know user testing ahead of some of the reports that we launch, again, to make sure that what we're putting out there is, is understandable for users. I know that developing products in the healthcare space can be very different than in other industries. Can you talk about some of the challenges that we might see in this space that maybe we don't see in other industries? I think some challenges that we have is one of our core values is that, you know, we're telling people about very personal information. And so we're always very careful to think about, you know, think empathetically about the information that our customers are getting. So that makes it a little difficult to run, say, lots of A-B tests where we try, you know, very wildly different ways of presenting this information. So I think that's that's one difference that for us is key. Yeah, I mean, we on the side of the regulated health reports, the challenge is, of course, always that we are regulated and we really respect that and work very hard to stay within the bounds of FDA regulations. But that is, you know, with every single report, we have to keep that in mind as we are developing the report content. Exactly. And does that mean, for example, that you cannot release an immediate update like within two hours, a change in the report? Does it have to go through some sort of process? Yes, so we do have an internal design control process for report changes. So it would be lovely at times to release (laughs) changes within two hours when we notice a typo. But we do go through a very extensive process to make sure all of our I's are dotted and T's are crossed before we release any changes to the medical device reports. Yeah. Or even if you have, uh, you got this new metric and you're like, oh, consumers are going to be excited about this because they've been asking for it. They cannot get it right after it was built. It's still definitely a long process. 
extremely long. I think, you know, Jamaica and I both went to grad school, so our definition <laughs> of long can be a little bit different. But, you know, it's still a process where regardless, you know, we get a new metric in, we want to be really careful when we evaluate that and make changes based on uh, based on new data. We want to make sure that, you know, the data that we're getting in is, is accurate and that the changes that we're making really address, you know, whatever that metric might be. And that, again, still we're empathetic to the information that we're giving users and, you know, very respectful of the fact that we can pre- be presenting really personal and potentially life-changing information. Exactly. And this is one of the things I've heard before in the healthcare space. It can be a challenge, you know, having the data to build a product. In this case, you have the data, users can opt in to participate. I want to talk about some of the ethical concerns in this space when dealing with, with sensitive data. In what ways can data be misused? I know you probably think about these things as working in this space. Can you give some examples of some of the risks? So this is mostly, I think, an issue on our research participant data, So, which both of us are not necessarily the experts in that, but I can speak you know, generally to some of this. So one key thing is that we hold ourselves to the highest privacy standards. So we try and keep the genetic data and any personally identifiable information, like names, addresses, things like that, that we need to you know, be able to ship you a kit or something in completely separate databases. We have a separate sort of development environment that has the genetic data that is separate from, again, the identifying data. And we have a lot of procedures and processes in place internally to make sure that access to that data is restricted only to people who need it and that everyone who does have access to those data are trained in how to keep that data stored safely. When we do these analyses sort of to create a report or for a research project, we always use what we call anonymized data, which is sort of aggregating data so that rather than saying, you know, Elisa has this genetic marker or this genetic variant at this location, we can say, okay, women, you know, between the ages of 35 and 40, 20% of them have this marker at this location. So trying to make it so that the data that we're using, unless it's absolutely necessary and unless a person has consented to use that, sort of their particular individual level data, we, as much as possible, avoid that. And I think another thing that's really important to bring up is the fact that we give all of our customers the, like, they have the final say in how their information is stored, used, and shared. So people can decide whether they want to biobank their spit sample, they can decide whether they want to opt in to research, they can decide whether they want to opt in and view health reports, whether they want to opt in and be part of our DNA relative connections tools. So really the power is in the hands of the customer and not in our hands. We wanna make sure that people are very comfortable with how their data is being used and how their information is used. Exactly because, well, as you're describing this, some of the risks that I see is for example, if you didn't have those precautions and protections, somebody maybe doesn't wanna find their relatives and then now suddenly they know who their relatives are for some reason or another and they might want it to keep that unknown or private or somebody maybe they don't want you know their family to know about a potential disease or their insurer so I think because what you're highlighting is very important that each person should be in control of this yes exactly and we do try as Jamaica noted like there's a lot of opt-ins so the assumption is that we'll not share data unless someone actively says 
they're okay with us sharing it. And ahead of all of those opt-ins, before someone actually does that, we always try and provide, try and be as transparent as possible and provide as much information as possible about what are potential, you know, risks. So even before you opt in to say, see DNA relatives, you know, we let people know, you know, what could happen with that and just think about it before making their decision. Exactly. And just have a few more questions before we finish. They're related to some hobbies that I saw both of you do. And at least I wanted to ask you because I, I was curious about this. What board games do you like to play? Which are your favorite ones? <laughs> Recently, my extended family and I have been playing a game called Seven Wonders. It's a great game, very fast to play. You can play a game in maybe 20 minutes. So it means you can play many, many, many games and have marathon sessions. And then classic Settlers of Catan. I think I think that's classic for me. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I played Seven Wonders and Carcassonne. I like Carcassonne. Settlers I played once, but I think it's it's a little similar. Yeah. And Jamaica, what are some of your favorite places to go hiking? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so I actually, I went to grad school down in the LA area, and I absolutely love hiking up in the San Gabriel Mountains. I think it's completely beautiful. It's also really nice to get up above the LA smog and actually, you know, be up on the mountains. So that's probably, I would say, that is some of my favorite hiking is down in the San Gabriels. Awesome. Well, Alisa and Jamaica, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you about 23andMe and this healthcare reports. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was fun.